The following audio is from Citizens Church in Charlotte, North Carolina. If you're interested in getting involved with our family, visit citizenscharlotte.com connect. Our teaching text this evening comes from James 1.27 through 2.13. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there, or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well." But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Church family, good to be with you. Good to see you. Um, if we haven't met before, uh, my name is Garrison. I'm an elder candidate here. Excited for tonight. Um, if you have a Bible, you can open up right where Tim left us off last week, James 1.26, right at the end of the chapter. Um, I'm going to pray for us, and then we'll get into it. Father God, we are really thankful to get to... Uh, have a space to meet, because um, that ultimately means that you have made a way for us to be family and for us to worship you. We don't deserve it, that it's a blood-bought gift. Um, Jesus, we thank you for your sacrifice for us to be made right with you and with one another, that we get to gather, that we get to sit under your word. Pray that you would uh, change us, transform us, and grow us through your word. Uh, we thank you for the gospel. Pray on your name, Jesus. Amen. Um, before we get into it, I want to give you a couple hypothetical scenarios. And I'm going to say some things, and I want you to just think through how you would respond to these, how you would think through it. So the first one, um, let's say that you have a friend. You've been friends for a couple years, and uh, they, they ask you to go get breakfast. This friend is one of those friends, and they're a little bit draining, So you go to breakfast, and it's kind of the same old story. They talk about themselves the whole time, never once really asking you a question at all. They talk about how awful their job is. It's unique. They talk about how awesome and life-giving their hobbies are. Uh, They spend at least 20 minutes talking about all the shows and books that they're reading that they love. Whenever you try to chime in, they show you six different ways that your opinion is dumb, and then they leave without paying the check. It's very hurtful. And they send you a text afterwards, thanks for breakfast. How would you respond to such a ridiculous scenario? How would you feel? 
Another one, uh, you're driving home from work and you stop at a stoplight. Uh, you look over to your left, you see uh, a man holding up a sign, it's a homeless man, and you make eye contact and they walk over to your car. How, again, do you respond? How do you think about the situation? And the last one, a Christian in your community group, um, they have a kind of continual unrepentant sin problem with, with anger. And they also have a tendency to not really bring it up. You have to kind of broach the subject every week. You pull it out of them time and time again. They justify it. They minimize it. When you try to point out a blind spot, they say that you're the problem. That you don't care that you're not hearing them and you're blowing it out of proportion. Once again, how do you feel? What do you do? So all of those situations kind of vary from ridiculous to pretty normal. And I would guess that most of us when they happen, or don't happen, but if you were in the situation, would feel at least uncomfortable, possibly, and if not worse. So we're going to get into some of that, but really what we're going to be talking about this week is our actions in response to others. So every week, James has said that real and living faith will result in us doing something. That real faith will translate into real-life action. So in week one, he showed us that living faith matures through trials, in week two, we talked about how living faith receives and obeys God's word. And tonight, we'll talk about how living faith welcomes. Living faith welcomes. So if you got a Bible, we'll hop right in to verse 26 at the end of chapter 1, and we'll see how James would push us to respond and treat others with welcome. So let's read together verse 26. It says, if anyone thinks he's religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. So this is where we left off last week. Essentially, James is wrapping up the chapter talking about Religion, And not just like religiosity where we kind of misprioritize what's actually important in the family of God. No, this is real genuine faith, religion. That's what he's talking about, genuine faith in God. And he's not just saying what real faith is. He's saying how it would work, how to gauge if it's real or not. And he says we've got three tests, three tests to gauge if you have real living faith. He says, how's your speech? Do you serve the poor and the needy? Do you consistently say no to sin? The one we're going to hone in on tonight is the middle one. Do you serve the poor and needy? Because real and genuine faith, it will translate to real and genuine love to serve the poor, to welcome in the poor. In the rest of the book, he's going to revisit the other two topics, but tonight, the poor and the needy. Uh, the next chapter, chapter 2, comes right out of this verse 27. So look back, and we'll see his continuation in verse 1. It says, My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, You sit here in a good place. While you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet. What James is talking about here, he's going to give us two categories, right? The first one is living faith welcomes. Living faith shows welcome. Dead faith shows partiality. Dead faith shows partiality. 
as he says in that first verse. So we can start there. What is partiality? So commonly you could say that just partiality would translate to favoritism. You show favorites. And according to what we see in this text, those favorites, the partiality is based on wealth, how much the person, the man or woman has. Now, if we actually push into what this text is saying, it's not just saying favorites. It's actually talking about discrimination, where you show honor and respect and more dignity towards those with more money, and you show the opposite towards the poor. So if we look at the context, James is talking about assemblies. So uh, assemblies in ancient cultures, essentially you would be assigned seats based off of your status. So usually those who are wealthy would get a better seat in the house, what James is calling the good place. And essentially we would, uh, the, it would go from greatest to least, depending on your status. So those with the least amount of money, the least amount of status, they would be stuck either standing in a bad place, or even worse, sitting at someone's feet like a dog. So we're really basing this on wealth, what people look like. So somebody walks in wearing a gold ring, nice clothes, and everybody perks up and says, hey, come sit in the good place. And the opposite shown to the poor. And James is saying, this doesn't work in the church. It can't fly. That we're not to be a people that show discrimination or favoritism based off of wealth or what people look like. And we don't withhold honor, glory, dignity, and respect. All of this, um, for us, is, is probably pretty straightforward. Like, of course. Like, if, if someone walks in, we wouldn't tell them to sit in a certain place because of the way that they look or what they have. Um, I think it would be a ridiculous thought. I could be wrong, but I would assume that nobody's thinking like... Um, Hey, you just walked in. You're wearing your uh, you're wearing your Target jeans, and you know I'm wearing my J. Crew jeans. So uh, right here at my feet, probably not. I don't know if that's a. Uh, I I only have one pair of jeans, so I, I don't really know. I don't really know. I'm not even gonna tell you my brand. All to, all to say that sounds ridiculous. We would never do that, but we can't fall into the trap that says we don't show partiality. It actually is just way sneakier than that. So I want to show you a little bit about how this actually shows up in our context. And the best way, I'm going to give you some categories, but honestly, the best way I know how to talk about it is to say, hey, let's pause for a second, do a little self-reflection, let's be honest. Do we not all kind of drift towards a certain type of person and likewise drift away? That's me being nice. Don't we choose isn't it just easier to go be friends, go to hang out with certain people, and likewise avoid others, people that are like us, people that have the same interests, same socioeconomic status? Um, the way a friend told me is, don't we kind of just look for my kind of people when we walk into a new situation or into a room? Who are my people? If, if that rings a bell, uh, what I would argue is that this shows that we have our own categories of poor our own categories of poverty. So for, for some of us, it is the financially poor. We may not say it like that, but people that are needy, people that have a lot of financial needs that need help, that makes us uncomfortable. It makes us frustrated. Maybe those uh, we, we struggle to want to make time for those in uh, a homeless situation or that are struggling in some other way, that we find that burdensome. Uh, but maybe it's not that. Maybe it's actually more like um, poor in life stage. 
This is a way that we get separated in, in all contexts, but even in the church, where it's like, oh, they're in a different life stage, so I don't know. I'll say it this way. Uh, I've noticed that I think everyone has a little bit of a tendency to be condescending and self-righteous towards those in a life stage that they've already been in. And we also have a tendency to be jealous and self-righteous towards those in the next life stage. And what happens is we get separated by that, we get frustrated with them, because the other life stages aren't loving and approaching us in the way that we would like. What it translates to is we're showing partiality. We get separated. The singles over here, the married people over here, the parents, the retired, whatever it is. Maybe it's uh, more like poor in maturity, where uh, it's hard for us to be around somebody that we think we've got the thing that they're going through figured out. Or how could they just not get it yet? Come on! This is what one of those first hypotheticals was, right? With the anger. Why can you not see your blind spot already? If, and, and really subconsciously we think, if I were you, I would have gotten it by now. We drift into that. Maybe it's a baby Christian, right? Where we can think, they don't really have much to offer me. I'm kind of doing the, all the pouring out here. So it's very easy to disassociate and to check out. Um, I, I do this one. So if, if I were to pick, this would probably be the one that I see myself do a lot, which is very ugly and gross. Um, I don't know if you see this too. Somebody confronted me on this a couple years ago where they said, you get really frustrated with people uh, who are going through something that you think that you've already done, which is very convicting because when you actually zoom in, it's like, I actually don't have it figured out. <laughs> So what I'm doing is I'm overemphasizing my own maturity and I'm undervaluing theirs. And it's a complete miss for maturity. Maybe not that. Maybe it's uh, more like poor in mind or body. The poor in mind or body. Um, once again, I don't think we would say this, right? We wouldn't look at somebody and say, well, you're just overweight. We wouldn't do that. We would say, I just can't believe they eat like that. I, I just can't believe that they, they don't really take good care of themselves. Hey, they probably should really watch out, you know, a couple years down the line. Maybe it's not the body. Maybe it's more like uh, the elderly, folks that are slower processors than us. It's very easy for us to think we're smarter. And finally, the last category I get, I'll give is the poor in personality. The poor in personality. This is what a friend of mine calls VDPs. Very draining people. I don't know if you have these in your life. It's just people that are hard to hang out with. They're dull. I don't like their interests. They annoy me. They're really needy. They stress me out. Uh, it does show up. It does show up. Actually, um, I kind of want to take a quick aside. Um, I want to kind of get practical just on one of these. I kind of want to hone in on it just for a little bit if I might. Um, we need to grow as a church. I'm just going to push in very frankly. We need to grow in how we part, uh, treat uh, the poor and uh, the needy with partiality. So I see this show up in our Mercy Ministries. We do a lot of service. We try to plan out different serve Saturdays throughout the year. We try to make it a priority to have partnerships with uh, different nonprofits and mercy organizations in our city. It's great. We do them consistently. We want to be a blessing. The problem that I've noticed is that we've had, uh, for about the past year and a half, we do these events, and we have about 20 people do them every week, every time. 
And it's the same 20 to 25 people every time, which if you are those people, we're very thankful for that. And when we were a church of 40, it was awesome. But we've grown and that number's kind of stayed the same. I don't care about the number. I care about you. I care about the people. It's reflective of our hearts, right? Where it's like, I don't have the time for that. Maybe I don't want to make that a priority. That reveals something in us. I want more for us. This isn't law. This isn't me trying to beat you over the head. This is something that we need to grow in as a church. Um, I don't think it starts and changes by me or Tim or other leaders trying to plan out more events or us communicating it differently. We have to, have, uh, to take personal responsibility over this to see that this is something needed in our church and in our city, that we need to step in and serve. We need to step in and be present not just wait for us to push it forward because our events are just the starting point. They're not the finish line. Um, I, I, I want to brag. Uh, we, I've actually seen um, uh, somebody do this really well in the past couple months. So uh, right before um, the holidays, we had a woman in our church um, who going into the holidays, going into the winter, she saw a need uh, with home, uh, the homeless popula- population in our city. She thought that, you know, this is going to be a very hard time. This is always a very hard time of the year for anybody that finds themselves in a homeless situation. I want to put together some care packages. She gave them out to our church. We didn't ask her to do that. (laughs) That's beautiful. (laughs) And we need more of that. We need more of that. Because that shows that we are collectively and individually pushing back on our partiality, on our apathy, on our lack of prioritization. All that to say, partiality does show up. It is a thing in our church. It can be towards the poor. It can be towards the wealthy too. It can be towards anyone that you physically, emotionally, relationally, spiritually distance yourself from. Well, there's more. Because you could hear all of that about the categories, all that stuff, and you could just say, no, I just have preferences. I just have preferences on who I want to be friends with who I want to spend my time with. This is good networking. I just want to hang out with uh, easy people. I actually want to show you a little bit more. Not just the how, but why. Why this is actually a real problem biblically. So look back at verse 5. We'll see the why. It says, Listen, my beloved brothers. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom? which he has promised to those who love him. But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are not they, are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? First reason why partiality is wrong is because partiality is against God's heart. Partiality is against God's heart. Very simply, it flies in the face of how God operates. So if you, if you think back uh, to, to the ancient assemblies, right, where it's pretty much uh, made up of your status, right, organized from least to greatest, this is the opposite of how Jesus works. He says that the, the greatest will be the least and the least will be the greatest. In fact, he himself came to take the low place. He came to serve. He emptied himself. He reverses the order. This is how it's supposed to work in his kingdom. In fact, uh, the Apostle Paul, he would say it like this in 1 Corinthians 1.26. 
He says, for consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God, God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Paul says, look to your salvation. Look to how it started. You, you weren't adopted into God's family because of your own bloodline, your genealogy, your family history. You weren't adopted because of your own works what you have, what, what you wear. No, it had nothing to do with us. It was entirely a work of God. What this does is it unifies the family. It doesn't matter what we have, who's, who has more status in this world. It unifies us and it equalizes us as family. So when we show partiality, when we show favoritism, we're not only dishonoring the poor man, we're dishonoring God. Because we're stepping out from under his saving grace. And we're saying, actually, I got it. Actually, I'm the judge. I'm going to evaluate people based on what I have done. And as James says, it's evil intentions. It's evil. You were not saved. We were not saved because of our awesomeness. So the demand that you, uh, you put on others when you show partiality, when you look at them and say, well, if only you were like me, it's anti-gospel. It's outside of how God saves and how he works and how he welcomes. So the level of hypocrisy and darkness that, that exists when we show partiality, when we don't want to get around people that uh, are of different socioeconomic statuses or us, or different life stages, or different maturity levels, or personalities, even if you just say it as like, it's just easier. It's hypocritical. And it works against the heart of God that says, hey, it, this had nothing to do with you. You are worse than the person you're looking down on. And I still saved you. And I still went to you. I still welcomed you in. Why won't you welcome them in? Why won't you go to them? We are against the heart of God when we show partiality. That's the first problem. It dishonors God. It dishonors the poor man. Whatever category of poor we put them in. And it contradicts his way. But we've got a second problem. Look back at verse 8. It reads, If you really fulfill the royal law according to the Scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails it in one point has become guilty of it all. For he who said do not commit adultery also said do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. Verse 13, for judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. The second way, second reason that partiality is wrong is because it's against God's law. Partiality is against God's law. There's a couple things that James highlights here. But the first one is that he's actually highlighting how big of a deal this is. Saying partiality isn't a small sin. Like, we kind of all categorize different sins. Like, this one's a big one. This one's the thing that I deal with. We probably hear partiality. This is probably like a verse that we read over, and it's like, oh, yeah. 
Add that to the list. Get to it in five years. This is a small thing. This isn't a big thing. I got way bigger stuff to work on. The problem is that's not how sin works. There's just sin. And when we sin by showing partiality, he highlights the next thing. He says we're convicted in the same way as someone who murders. We break the law. Which goes right back to what? (laughs) No, we don't. (laughs) That can't be real. Because this isn't a big thing. This is shocking. It's just like, no, no, sir, James. Just because of logic, that can't be true. I'm not a murderer. I have my preferences. That can't be the same. And again, we're wrong. We're wrong because we view sin wrongly. We view sin with varying degrees of badness. That's not how God views sin. When we sin, we break the law, period. And all sin separates us from God and is worthy of condemnation. There's no varying degrees of badness. You can ask why. It's because God's holy. He's perfect. So when we view certain sins as small, we're completely wrong. Because we're missing what sin is. We're missing what God, who God is. So when you break God's law in any way, including partiality, including just like, oh, they're kind of annoying. You're guilty. And James is correcting our view of this. Then he leads us to another thing, a third thing saying not only is it a big deal and you're missing it, saying you're also going to be judged. His words in uh, verse 13 are almost identical to something Jesus says in Matthew 6. I'll throw it up there. It says, For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Something we don't really like (laughs) to talk about is that we will be judged by how we live, how we respond to this, how we speak, and how we act. We just will. We'll be judged by how we treat the poor, by how we view the poor. And if we don't have mercy for the poor, we'll be shown no mercy. If we have no categories, no actions of welcome towards those who are different than us, then we'll be shown no welcome. If you show favoritism, you'll be shown no favor. So he says, act as if that were true. Live and act as those who are to be judged. It's incredibly sobering. He says, you don't get sin. And also, by the way, you're going to have to give an account for that. There's going to be a day where, yeah, 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 uh, it's not that big of a deal. It's just in my heart. Well, there's going to be a day where everything we ever thought is laid out before God. He says, live in light of that. It's very scary. But we do have hope in the midst of it. Finish up, look back at verse 13. He points us to the gospel. Verse 13, the second half, he says, mercy triumphs over judgment. You will be judged. We do minimize our sin. Could give you 10 different practicals of what to do, but he says, no, look to Jesus Remember the mercy and the welcome of Jesus. Now you could do nothing to earn God's love and kindness, but it was given to you in Christ. When we sin by showing our partiality towards whatever category, it shows that we've missed the gospel. We can get into all the whys, but ultimately it's we missed the gospel. Instead of our hearts being poured out to those who are different than us, because it's exactly what God did, we say no. 
No, they need to be more like me because I'm good on my own. Tim Keller talks about it this way. He says, a merely religious person who believes God will favor him because of his morality and respectability will ordinarily have contempt for the outcast. He thinks, I've worked hard to get where I am, and so can anyone else. This is the heart of partiality. Look down and say, I'm good. Why can't they be more like me? If only they were like this, then it would be way easier to be around them. He keeps going. He says, this is the language of the moralist's heart. I am only where I I am by the sheer and unmerited grace of God. I am completely equal with all other people. That is the language of the Christian's heart. A sensitive social conscience and a life poured out in deeds of mercy to the needy is the inevitable sign of a person who has grasped the doctrine of God's grace. When we show partiality, we show our pride. We show that we've missed the gospel. We show that we're the standard, we're the judge. And this is what Keller's calling moralism. That it actually translates to we believe in works-based righteousness. That it's actually me. (laughs) I stand on the throne and I judge. And he says, no. No. The Christian's heart has been humbled by the gospel. That's the only way you can actually get to repentance of your partiality. It's not by, hey, let me give you five tips. No, it is this. It is look to the cross. Look to what Jesus has done for you because you cannot be prideful before the cross because you couldn't have done it. (laughs) You couldn't have saved yourself. We could have never earned God's love or affection. Couldn't have worked hard enough. We couldn't have stacked up enough people that we were better than because works don't save us. We're saved by grace alone through faith alone. So in light of that, we repent. We welcome because Christ welcomed us. We show mercy because the mercy shown to us. And this is where James concludes. Mercy triumphs over judgment. He says, remember the triumph of God's mercy in your own life. Remember your salvation. Remember your salvation. Meditate on it. Let it humble you. Let it change you. Look to the cross. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Remember the mercy of God because ultimately, and this is where I'll end, if Christ showed us any partiality, if Christ showed partiality, none of us would experience his salvation. We'd all be left out. We do not live up to it. And that's what translates to living faith. A living faith that welcomes, that shows mercy and kindness because of what Christ has done. And when you actually get this, when we actually believe it individually, it transforms our relationships. And when we get this collectively, it actually transforms our city, where people actually walk in the door and it's like, whoa, this is home. Because it feels a little bit like heaven. Or we're welcomed in because of Christ, where our city sees that something is different in us. Our city will be blessed because of the living faith that we have in Christ. Let me pray for us, and the band will come back up. Father God, we, uh, the gospel is humbling, and we thank you for it, that we cannot, could not, will not be able to save ourselves. God, let uh, any partiality and favoritism that we have Let it point us to the cross where we see that we're off. 
and that we're humbled by the fact that you didn't look down on us, but you welcomed us in with your kindness, with your grace, with your mercy. Lord, change us, convict us. God, it's so easy uh, for us to minimize, to push this one away and say, no, we need your help. We need your spirit to show it to us that we would actually be able to repent. God, we pray that we would be able to do it as a church so we could bless others, that we could be a place that feels different, that is different because of the gospel, that we welcome others as you have welcomed us. We pray it all in your name, Jesus. We thank you. Amen.